From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut, along with Tia Mitchell in Washington. Today, after revealing interview videos of Trump RICO defendants were leaked to the media, Fulton County prosecutors are asking a court to block other discovery materials from being made public. AJC reporter Tamar Hallerman joins us for an update. The U.S. House has passed a continuing resolution that will keep the government running past Friday's shutdown deadline, but four Republicans in Georgia's delegation voted against it. Plus, as Republicans in Congress continue their attacks on Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, we'll ask Chuck Cook, one of the country's top immigration lawyers, for a report on the state of the border. And Greg Bluesting fills us in on the historic march in Washington in support of Israel. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Tia, before we move forward, we have to start with the news on your beat. The House actually passed a continuing resolution overnight last night. It's that odd sort of two-step compromise worked out by Speaker Mike Johnson. He did it with Democratic and Republican votes, but... He lost four Georgia Republicans in the process, yes? Yeah, he lost about half of Republicans, a little less than half um, of the Republicans in the House voted no, mainly because it's it's basically just the same funding levels that are already in place that were put in place when appropriations bills were passed under the Democratic majority. Um, a lot of conservatives want more cuts. And so they're just kind of opposed to these continuing resolutions on principle. And we heard yesterday from people like Rich McCormick, Mike Collins, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andrew Clyde. Those are the four from Georgia who voted against the bill. And they basically said, you know, we want the speaker to fight for more spending cuts. We want the speaker to fight for policy limiting immigration at the southern border. We want the speaker to fight, you know, in the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, to fight to remove money for Ukraine. And that's not happening. The speaker just kick the can down the road in a very clean way. That's why all but two Democrats supported the bill. But that's why a lot of conservatives have been fighting, not just with the current speaker, but former Speaker McCarthy. Yeah, ironically, uh, uh, Speaker Mike Johnson uh, got away with something that Kevin McCarthy couldn't. And in fact, it's probably because of the chaos that followed Kevin McCarthy's decision to work with Democrats uh, that he lost his job. And Republicans just don't have any appetite for continuing that kind of chaotic battle to uh, uh, dismiss this speaker as well, right? I think that's some of it. I think also, quite frankly, that shows that even when politicians said this is about the principle of McCarthy working with Democrats, that wasn't all that was there. Some of that was personal. Some of that was they never wanted McCarthy to be speaker in the first place. Some of that was they felt he hadn't been a good speaker and hadn't been straightforward with them in the in the what nine months that he served in that role. So they might have cited the policy as their justification for ousting him. But I think what we're seeing is it went deeper than that. And they just don't have the same level of animosity right now 
towards Mike Johnson. So they're giving him more leeway. Just give him time. <laughs> we'll see what happens over a period of time. Um, exactly. We'll, this goes to the Senate, of course. Uh, their deadline is midnight Friday. Uh, Chuck Schumer has said already he's talked to the White House. They are not thrilled by this two-step continuing resolution approach, but they think it's better than shutting the government down. So we should avoid a government shutdown, uh, at least in the weeks and couple of months ahead. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. So, Tia, let's move on um, and talk about this development yesterday in um, the RICO case here in Fulton County, but also its impact on the federal case against Donald Trump. Yesterday, we saw leaked videos of proffers or interviews that defendants in the Trump case uh, gave in which they revealed really fascinating and potentially significant information that will be used in testimony against Donald Trump and his co-conspirators here in Georgia. And now Tamar Hallerman, uh, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, apparently they're saying, we didn't leak this stuff. We don't know who did. Um, you've gotten a hold of it. The Washington Post uh, has it as well, ABC News. But now the Fulton County District Attorney's Office is saying, we got to get Judge Scott McAfee to absolutely ban any further release of discovery material of any sort. Yes? Yeah, they're seeking a protective order today in court. And it would be a pretty strict ban in terms of what can be shared um, by defense attorneys. There's two upwards of two terabytes of data that's been passed over as part of discovery. And they're basically, you know, the horses are out of the barn. At least these four proffers have been shared. They're, they're out there. Those videos have been posted. Um, but they're hoping that any future defendants who might flip and, and strike plea deals, that their interviews do not get leaked out. And so what the DA's office is seeking is, is pretty darn strict. If anyone is, um, if a judge holds somebody in violation of the court, uh, they could be held in contempt. There could be very stiff penalties for that. And, and it's pretty strict. Um, there are defense attorneys in this case who are saying it's way too strict. And basically there's a need to at least be able to share discovery among people who could be potential witnesses to help them on their side of the aisle. They need to, to be able to share certain things to be able to see, hey, are you going to be helpful to my client? And so a lot of them are starting to push back. So, um, um, we, we know we saw uh, the proffered videotapes from Sidney Powell, from Kenneth Chesborough, um, from, uh, tell me the others I'm missing off the top of my head. Jenna right Ellis and Jenna Scott Ellis Hall. Jenna Ellis and Scott Hall. Scott Hall being the bail bondsman who was involved in the Coffee County dispute. Um, T, in just a minute, I'd love to get you involved, but, but um, uh, tell us tomorrow what, we talked a bit about this on the show yesterday, but what were some of the things you heard in those video proffers that really captured your attention. 
Well, lots of different things. I mean, starting with Jenna Ellis, that was one of the first videos that that got leaked. And what was interesting, she was talking about a conversation she had with Dan Scavino, who was a senior White House aide at a White House Christmas party in December of 2020. And he basically said, well, Trump is not preparing to leave the White House. We're going to stay. And at that point, it seemed pretty clear that Joe Biden had won the election. That speaks a lot potentially to the state of mind of, of Donald Trump and the people around him at the time. Um, some other interesting things, Sydney Powell talked in detail about what she would have done had Trump actually appointed her special counsel, how she would have tried to seize voting machines, yeah. which was interesting. Um, some potentially more exonerating evidence for Trump or, or something that could work in his favor. She's saying she never heard him acknowledge that he lost the election. Um, and all his comments to her was that, no, the people around me are wrong. Like I, I have won the election. Um, we heard lots of details, people like Ch Ken Chesbro talking about how he ended up, for example, with Alex Jones on January 6th outside of the, the U.S. Capitol. He said he just ran, ran into him coincidentally, didn't know him, but walked along with him for a while. Um, but it was really just interesting to hear these folks talking in their own words. People like Sidney Powell, this was some really extensive comments from her to see just how conspiratorially minded she still is about the election. Um, it was pretty fascinating. Yeah. So, Tamar, I wanted you to help me understand D.A. Willis made it pretty clear that these leaks didn't come from her office. She said that straight up. It was not us. She's not happy. Um, the assumption is one of the defendants, their attorneys leaked this possibly as well. That's what I'm confused. What what would be the theory of leaking these tapes that are incriminating to the defense. Why would someone leak them? What are the theories out there? And that's something, Tia, that I've been wondering myself. And and you're right, we still don't really know. The DA's office kind of halfway accused the the defense team of Harrison Floyd in their filing. Apparently, there was an email chain with all of the defense attorneys in the DA's office, and apparently, one of Harrison Floyd's lawyers raised his hand and said, "We leaked it." But then a couple of minutes later responded, wait, that's a typo. <laughs> no, <laughs> we didn't um, leak. But it. I was trying to think, yeah, why would you leak it? And why would you leak it to ABC, like kind of a more mainstream news organization? Um, and there's plenty of theories out there. Maybe there were folks who thought that there was some exonerating evidence in those tapes. Maybe they felt that comments that somebody like Sidney Powell made or Kenneth Chesbro made may, would make their client look good in the eyes of the public. Maybe somebody's out for revenge. They wanted somebody else to look really bad, one of the defendants or even the DA's office. It's possible. Maybe there's somebody, and I'm just speculating here, it's possible there's somebody who's worried they could be in trouble with Jack Smith in Washington, D.C., and maybe thought they could get out ahead of this by by leaking all this. We really don't know at this point, but it was a pretty spectacular leak. That said, there's no protective order in place. There was nothing limiting that information from being shared other than kind of custom and and uh kind of <laughs> internal people people don't like to do that but but it wasn't illegal or anything like that either so um tomorrow uh if if i'm the defense attorney uh for one of the rico defendants and i've now seen jenna ellis's uh, uh video in which she says that scavino said well we're not leaving the job we're gonna stay here as a defense lawyer that may give me some something to work with when I start to present my side of the case in terms of whichever defendant in the RICO case here I'm dealing with. 
But remember, the defense attorneys had already had this information. It was passed along to them as part of the discovery oh, process. It, so they've had they've had these videos for weeks in theory. I think what's interesting is they decided somebody decided that the public needed to see this. So they and all so, had it. They all had the same material. But it's interesting to see as a member of the media, a member of the public, what was said, what the DA's office got out of all of this, and who might be implicated by some of these statements. Uh, Tia, there's another interesting development uh, that you uh, uh, helped with, uh, uh, helped Tamar on. You learned yesterday, uh, Fannie Willis was in Washington and, and made an appearance in which she talked about how the long she could imagine this trial here in Fulton County going on to you. Yeah, it was very interesting. So the Washington Post held a, an event and Fannie Willis was, I would say it, she was the marquee guest until at the very last minute, Fran Drescher was added to the list to talk about the <laughs> end of the actor strike. Um, so she was a very last minute ad. So I guess she became top billing after that. But I will say the room was packed for Fonnie Willis. Um, and so she talked both about being a prosecutor in the work, but then she also talked about being a woman. This was um, the Global Women's Summit. So she just talked about being a mother. You know, I was surprised her personality shown through in a lot of ways we don't get to see when she's just up at the front of the room holding a press conference. But anyways, um, she was asked about the timing of the cases. And she said, you know, I, it could take us through the presidential election. It could go into 2025. And the interviewer, um, a Washington Post reporter said, well, does that mean inauguration day? Like, what if Donald Trump and she didn't, you know, they didn't, weren't speaking specifically about Donald Trump. But they said, what if there's someone who's it's their inauguration day and they're still on trial. And Fonnie Willis basically said, I can't factor a political calendar into what I feel is best as a prosecutor. I'm not thinking about those things. Yeah, it was certainly interesting to have, frankly, some more realistic timelines coming out of the DA's office. Last we heard from them was right after indictments came out in August or September. And they were saying that they wanted to try all 19 defendants at the time together in March of 2024. And when they said that, all of us were <laughs> kind of laughing a little bit just because given the the trial schedule already for Donald Trump, his, his DC trial with Jack Smith starts in the beginning of March. There's the hush money Stormy Daniel trial at the end of March. There's the classified documents trial still scheduled for end of May. I think a lot of people just said that was so unrealistic, but now that we don't have this speedy trial going on with Ken Chesbro and Sidney Powell, because they cut plea deals, uh, there's been a big question about the calendar. Now that we're down to um, 15 defendants, when do they start? Um, we have a bunch of pretrial deadlines that lead us into January, but then kind of lends itself to a um, spring timeline. So so what's realistic at this point? So it was interesting to hear her thoughts on that. And of course, there's the election season. DOJ has guidance in place that they're not supposed to be doing anything that's that could be seen as overtly political close to the election. State prosecutors are not under that same um, requirement. So it was interesting to hear her thoughts on all of that for really the first time. Tamar, um, uh, give us a, an, an update on what else is coming up in the Fulton County case. Sure. Well, 
at 1.30 today, Judge Scott McAfee will, will be holding a hearing over this request from the DA's office to have a protective order. And he is basically opening up the floor to whoever wants to say things. So it'll be interesting to see who comes out in opposition to that. If anyone comes up and maybe points fingers about who might have leaked this thing, there's been lots of chatter about who that might be. Um, maybe we'll hear something about that. Harrison Floyd, by the way, the defendant who Fannie Lew- uh, Willis said his team was responsible for that. He's been tweeting up a storm on social media saying that it wasn't him and all sorts of conspiracies about the, the DA's office in all of this. But so we have that coming up uh, right after Thanksgiving. We have a, a hearing over what are called demurrers, basically folks challenging the way the indictment is structured and, and the charges that are at play. They're saying there's not enough evidence presented um, and that the DA's office was faulty in bringing certain charges. And then in mid-December, we ha- we hear from Mark Meadows, who's been appealing his push to remove proceedings to federal court. He's in front of the 11th Circuit. So we've got quite a few things happening in the weeks ahead. Just to be clear, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, because he already lost at, uh, at, at, at the um, uh, first level, the district level, his attempt to move to federal court. Tia? Yeah, I go back to the fact that we've got a lot of people who it's still a lot of parts. Yes. What we have four plea agreements yet, and that leaves 15 others. And I think it's interesting because like you all just noted, noted that people are at different levels. Like the fact that Mark Meadows is still trying to appeal. Um, And then I, Tamar, I have a question. Why is it that, when we think about the grand scheme of things, Harrison Floyd is like not the most well-known. He's considered of all the players, not one of the big fish, but it seems like lately his name is coming up the most. Um, Why is that? Can you help explain why it seems like him and his team are so out there on the case when it, you know, we would have assumed he would have been maybe one of the first to strike the plea deals as a small fish. Yeah. Well, let's take Harrison Floyd first, and then we can talk about the the bigger happenings in the case. Harrison Floyd, we have been hearing a lot from him lately. His lawyers, um, we had a hearing over some of his motions uh, a week or two ago, and he's taking a very unique approach kind of by himself in this case. They're using this opportunity to try and prove that the election was indeed won by Donald Trump in 2020. So we're still kind of at that stage in the legal process. We're not even talking about his particular involvement necessarily, allegedly, with Ruby Freeman, the, the poll worker. They their approach is if they can successfully argue that Trump won in Georgia in 2020, all of the assumptions in the indictment fall apart. And so they're using a lot of their energy and their firepower to do that. Or short of showing that Trump won Georgia, that there was enough of a question that somebody like Harrison Floyd was valid as they were kind of trying to push push for their own answers and, and take the courses of action that they did in the aftermath of the 2020 election. As for your kind of bigger comment, Tia, that we still, there still are a lot of moving pieces in all of it. You're so right. Um, it's looking increasingly likely that this will play out in Fulton County Superior Court where cameras will be present, but there still is that chance that this could get removed to federal court. It's looking less and less likely given how all the five people who tried to do this lost in district court. 
that's still a question. The number of defendants at play is still a question. Um, we're assuming Fonnie Willis would like to get more plea deals in all of this. I'm truly not expecting 15 people to go to trial at the end of the day. Another big question will be, in how many buckets will this be moving? Will all of the remaining defendants be lumped together in court in, in one giant group? Or does eventually Judge McAfee split them up in some way? Um, maybe according to their availability or even what buckets of the indictment were were they involved in? Uh, tomorrow, will you be in uh, Judge McAfee's court to report on this, this or one of your colleagues, Bill, Bill Rankin or uh, Shannon McAfee, perhaps uh, uh, McIntyre, perhaps? <laughs> we'll be there. It's it's over Zoom today, but we will be watching. Closely. OK, tomorrow, Hellerman, thank you so much uh, for filling us in on uh, the latest developments in this case that continues to draw national headlines uh, out of Fulton County. Thank you very much, uh, Tamar. Hey, Tia, before we take a break, very quickly, what the heck is going on in on your beat on Capitol Hill? I'm not going to be the only one who said it looks like Fight Club up there. <laughs> Yesterday, uh, Kevin McCarthy apparently elbowed Tim uh, Tennessee Congressman uh, Tim Burchett. A allegedly. Rep- allegedly. A Republican mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, who voted against mm-hmm. McCarthy uh, uh, f- to continue as speaker. Uh, McCarthy denies it, but NPR actually had a reporter who seemed to watch the whole thing unfold. And McCarthy's, yeah, McCarthy's been aggressive in, in other instances, too. He's shown some shoulder knocks and that sort of thing, yes? Yeah, I mean, yesterday was an interesting day. You know, we had the thing with McCarthy and Burchett. We had Senator Mullins, a U.S. senator, in a Senate hearing challenge a union president to a fight. And literally Bernie Sanders was, you know, playing the dad saying, sit down, you're a U.S. senator. Um, And then, um, you know, we did have. Comer and Moskowitz go back and forth during a House <laughs> hearing where Moskowitz called for an investigation of Comer and Comer called him a smurf. They're both pretty sh- short men. I will say this. A lot of number one, we should note they were all men. But, you know, we've seen women, <laughs> particularly Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, go at it in the past. But yesterday it was all men behaving badly. But one of the kind of the excuses given was they're just tired they've been in session for 10 weeks straight and they just everyone needs to a break and go home and i was like nine to five america would like a word if having weekends <laughs> off is but working 10 weeks straight is causing stress all right uh, a, a final word on that uh to you. Uh, uh senator kevin kramer of north dakota he's a republican uh, in talking about these confrontations, uh, he, sa- he said this, quote, it's a dynamic place. He doesn't think people should take this that seriously. It's a dynamic place. We don't wear the white wigs <laughs> anymore. That's Senator uh, Kramer out of North Dakota. We're going to take a break right now. We'll be back with more on Politically Georgia in just a minute. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. You may have noticed that what we used to refer to as the jolt now has a new name, but 
we still do have a jolt of Georgia political news as you read it. Scoops and exclusives from Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Adam Van Brimmer. It's a heads-up new so a heads up to new and future subscribers, we're rebranding our subscriber-only morning politics must-read from the jolt to Politically Georgia. There's no better time to subscribe at AJC.com newsletters. Thanks for being here as we look forward to a big election year in 2024. Tia, uh, let's just set up our the next part of our conversation today. Uh, early this week, Marjorie Taylor Greene I had yet another impeachment motion that she wanted to pass. This time it was uh, to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. Uh, It was defeated. She apparently may try to bring it back. Uh, But in the meantime, the Homeland Security Committee uh, is continuing its investigation with the hopes of possibly impeaching Mayorkas themselves. Have I got that right? Yes. So it wasn't defeated technically. What it was, her impeachment resolution was sent to the Homeland Security Committee. It was referred to committee. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene says that's the same thing as defeating it because there, as you noted, the committee already is investigating the Secretary Mayorkas. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't think the committee is working quickly enough and is kind of dragging its feet. Um, But technically, that's what happened. That's why those eight Republicans sided with Democrats to refer it to committee as opposed to just impeaching him flat out without a committee report or any, you know, firm justification. Well, Republicans led by Representative Comer, who is the chair of the Homeland Security Committee, have continued to pound on Mayorkas for what they say um, is his uh, not just ineffective, but potentially criminal uh, inaction along the border. And when we talk about immigration matters, the first name that comes to my mind is one of the country's top immigration attorneys, Charles Cook, Chuck Cook, um, who is with us in the studio today. And Chuck, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be invited back. I'm great to be a guest on on this great show again. I'm great it's live again. I'm so excited about this. (laughs) We are too. So Chuck, let me start. Let's do a little fact finding here. Um, As you well know, Comer and other Republicans have said repeatedly, the border under President Biden is wide open. Anyone can come in Drugs are coming across the border in large quantities. There are certainly reasons to believe terrorists are coming across the border. So let's start with this question. Is the U.S. border with Mexico wide open? Uh, Only to GOP congressmen, I believe. Um, It it appears to be closed to everybody else uh, because CBP is arresting people who cross irregularly, who legally cross, cross the border. The problem with this rhetoric that the border that the border's open is that people hear this that don't live in the United States. So, oh, the border's open. And people, obviously, most Americans don't really believe the border's open. But people outside the country think it is. So I'll just come. The border's open. It's, it's terrible rhetoric. It's bad advertising, first of all. It's not factually true, second. But three, it's leading to people saying, well, if these politicians in America are saying it's open, I can come. So that's one of the reasons why we're seeing records numbers of people come to the border. But no, it's clearly not open. Uh, CBP is doing the best job it possibly can uh, to keep people out of the United States. But the reality is this. 
you can't build a wall high enough. You can't buy enough uh, barbed wire uh, for people that are desperate enough to come to the United States. I want to point out, as we continue our conversation, that you are very much a nonpartisan when it comes to talking about the border. I've heard you criticize Democrats, including President Biden, as well as Republicans like uh, Representative Comer. So I want to make sure people hear that you are not coming in as a Democrat. No, I, I will tell you this. Uh, there, there's a lot of Democrats that would be happy that Secretary Mayorkas would be gone as well. It's uh, just that impeachment might, might not be the best best option there. You know, the reality of the border is this. The border is, is a very complicated issue. Uh, and anybody who's spent time on the border, who's lived on the border, I went to school in Arizona, you know it's a complicated issue. Uh, the idea that it remains open in any way is just false. The idea that because of Joe Biden or because of Ali Mayorkas, that massive drugs are coming in is false. The idea that terrorists are coming in because of Biden or Mayorkas is false. All these things have happened for generations. You're just seeing it reported, one, reported better by this administration than by any other. And you're also seeing the, the consequence of the border effectively being closed because of COVID. Not because of Trump, but because of COVID. Uh, people just stayed home for two years. And you're seeing a lot of people who, because they were home for two years, seeing how bad maybe their countries are. You're also seeing a lot of political upheaval in Central America and in South America that really didn't exist there over the last 20 years. And because of those things, especially in countries like Venezuela uh, and Nicaragua, where, where basically people that are communists are in charge that are destroying those economies, people are saying, well, I'm going to go to the country whose, quote, borders are open because politicians told me. It's a very complicated issue, not made any easier by Congress simply talking about it, but not offering any solutions. Uh, President Biden has asked in its in his recent supplemental spending uh, funding request for $14 billion supplemental for the border. Now, keep in mind, people think that's a lot of money. Well, how much do you think we spend on the border already? The, the, the Border Patrol's budget is only about $8 billion. So this is, in, this is the entire Border Patrol's budget on steroids in the middle of a fiscal year. Uh, they're not going to be able to go out and hire people. Just like the Border Patrol is like any other employer in America, right? They can't find bodies to get the jobs. They have a massive hiring problem. So even if they said hire 20,000 more Border Patrol agents, they don't have the physical capacity to do that. Um, but the issues of like build a wall. Okay, what's a wall going to do? It's going to increase sales of Sawzalls at, at Home Depot because that's you're going to cut right through <laughs> that wall. Uh, anybody seen those great videos can see, can see that. The, what you need to be doing here is a multi-pronged approach, which is, yes, better border enforcement, but that requires more money that Congress has allocated. But you need to be doing advertising. You, you need to be telling people in Latin America, particularly, the border is not open. The border is closed. And here's why it's closed. And here's what's going to happen to you if you come illegally to the United States. Tia, jump in. So, Chuck, I wanted to bring up, you mentioned the the issue of drugs at the border. And when we hear Republicans in Congress talk about why they fault Secretary Mayorkas, the Biden administration, they bring up the fentanyl crisis all the time and say the fentanyl that we know is killing thousands of Americans. Um, it's a, it is, it is a big deal, but they say it, the Southern border being porous is why there's so much fentanyl coming into America. 
is that the case or is that, you know, another more misinformation according to your research? That would not be factually accurate. Um, mass, more than 95% of fentanyl that comes into the United States comes across the ports of entry, the legal ports of entry. They, they hide it in cars, they hide it in bodies because you don't want to walk through the desert with poisonous fentanyl on your back. And that's just not how that works. The other thing that people don't realize is, you know, you, you think back to the, the, er, the late nineties when we had a massive surge in immigration, undocumented immigration, uh, during the late Clinton years and early Bush years and early 2000s in response to a growing economy. Uh, people were literally crossing the desert. The border is a very different border today. And what when, when the Border Patrol talks about the people they've caught, so last month in October, the numbers went down by about 17%. They caught crossing, they call it irregularly or crossing illegally. They're literally crossing a mile away from the port of entry. They're not walking out into the desert trying to avoid the Border Patrol. They're trying to get in because the current border, uh, the, the ports of entry are full. They're just going around and just sitting down and waiting for the border patrol to pick them up. They're not carrying fentanyl with them. So one of the things that I do like, there's a particular politician out of Tennessee, a U.S. senator, who loves tweeting about this all the time, saying the border patrol has seized X amount of money. And it's like, okay, applause, congrats. That's exactly what they should be doing. But there wouldn't be massive amounts of fentanyl coming in if there wasn't massive demand in the United States. People, people aren't s- s- sneaking fentanyl doses into your Diet Coke at Starbucks. All right? you, you want these drugs. People want these drugs. And that's why they're coming in. Let, let me pick up on something you said a couple minutes ago. You said there are Democrats who would like to see Mayorkas gone, oh. too. What is he doing uh, that dem- would, would cause Democrats to want to get rid of a guy who's part of the Biden administration? And where do you think he it may be creating problems? Well, I'll tell you, one of the problems that a lot of advocates have with uh, with Secretary Biden is that he hasn't acted fast enough to fix the damage. President to Biden? Pre- yeah, President Biden. Okay. Uh, that, that, uh, sorry about that. I don't mean well, not, not, not Secretary Mayorkas. Yeah, uh, Secretary Mayorkas hasn't done enough to fix the problems, the destruction rendered into the immigration system by the Trump administration. A lot of the problems you see today are problems caused by the Trump administration by having people, firing people, getting people to quit, reducing budgets, uh, changing policies that made immigration, legal immigration, very difficult in the United States. And Mallorca's have basically done almost nothing up until the last six months to fix those problems. That And that's why they think he's just a terrible Homeland Security Secretary. But he's also not really been in the forefront and, and out there on fighting the increase in undocumented immigration at the border. This is an issue. We can't keep taking in two to three million people at the border undocumented every single year. The way our system works, and hopefully a lot of Americans agree with this, is there is a level of due process afforded to people. Congress passed a law in 1980 that said, if you come to the border illegally or you're you're in the United States, you have a legal right pursuing to our treaty obligations to apply for asylum. Well, asylum has a process. The Biden administration is trying to change right now. They proposed regulation to change how that process works to basically take most of the due process out of the system, have all of the claims heard at the border within days of people's entry to the United States. One thing I've learned in practicing law for 35 years and handling literally a thousand asylum cases is these cases take time to develop. They take time to process. And a lot of people who do, in fact, have legitimate asylum cases and Many of these people do not have legitimate asylum cases, but they are suffering from PTSD. 
They have a hard time articulating their stories, their language. They may speak a language that's not Spanish. Everybody thinks Spanish in Latin America. That's not true. But there is, there's, there's just a lot of complications in the process that the Mayorkas is trying to gloss over in its attempt to appease or cover the idea that we have a record number of people coming to the United States. Tia, you know, it's interesting to me that it's been well over a decade, and, and Chuck Cook can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, that we've seen any effort on Capitol Hill for bipartisan uh, uh, measures to fix problems at the border. This is always a fight, a partisan fight between Republicans and Democrats, and it, depending on who's in the White House, the other side thinks the policy of that president is wrong. Yeah, I think that at any given time, particularly in the Senate, there are bipartisan small groups that are at least trying to chip away at the topic. And um, Chuck, you let me know if you agree with that. I, but I would finding agree with that. something I would agree with that. that can actually pass. Yeah. But finding something that would actually can be brought to the floor and can pass, particularly in the Senate, where you have the filibuster, um, knowing in the House, particularly when Republicans are in control and you've got conservatives who need to be appeased, that is where the solution has been elusive. So the work has been there, but the solution has been elusive. And um, I think that there is I mean, a lot of people want to get something done, but also the details of whether, you know, right now the energy in the House is limits at the southern border, limits to immigration, whereas Democrats, when they're more in control, they want to talk about pathways to legal immigration. Um, but again, I would be interested in, Chuck, how would you kind of um, talk about these different silos of thinking as to when we get to comprehensive immigration reform, what it should entail? Let, let me, I love that question. Let me throw one thing in uh, to add, though, to what Tia is saying. You're not going to get anywhere when Donald Trump talks about um, illegal immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants, uh, poisoning the blood of real Americans. Um, we also remember that Saxby Chambliss, senator from Georgia, during his tenure, worked in a bipartisan way to pass a comprehensive immigration bill. And when he came before the state Republican convention that year, he was literally booed off the stage. Well, you know, interesting. I sat in Saxby Chambliss's uh, Senate offices in 2013 when that vote was beginning to take place. And the phone was ringing off the hook uh, against Saxby doing something. Because one thing I learned in, in being in D.C. a lot of years is uh, happy people don't call their congressmen. Only angry people, <laughs> only angry people call their congressmen. But really, to your point, uh, Tia, it's, it's really interesting about the politics of this. Yes, the Senate, there are senators working right now to get something to fix something at the border. It has zero chance of passing. It's just not going to pass. It, it's not going to pass out of the ha out of the Senate. Maybe it would likely never even have a vote in the Senate. It certainly wouldn't pass out of the House. But what's what's ironic about this entire problem, the, the irony uh, was pointed out yesterday in a great article in the AJC uh, about the new Hyundai battery plant yeah. being put into Savannah, which will generate the need for 15,000 employees. And the big, the second underneath the headline, it said the only problem is we don't have 15,000 people to fill those jobs. We just literally don't have them. This is a problem throughout the United States. Dem de demographics is destiny. 
Uh, we are, as a population, shrinking without immigration. Uh, recent numbers just came out of the CBO that made clear that without immigration, our population will decline. And a, a declining population does not equal a growing economy. So the exact same time right now that we need more people to do jobs of various different levels in the United States, from rocket scientists all the way down to field workers in the field, is the exact same time that people are coming to the United States to do many of those jobs. Well, and in fact, we're, we're almost out of time, but that leads me to the final question I actually wanted to ask you, and that is, where do we stand, whether you're talking about a farm worker who comes in to go to a farm in somewhere near Tifton, Georgia, to uh, pick crops, or, as you say, a skilled worker at a Hyundai plant? Where do we stand now with what Congress wants to do, Republicans, with the H-2A visa program? Well, the H-2A change that Biden is is trying to make some policy changes on, the Biden administration's policy changes are going to disrupt the H-2A program and make it much less desirable for farmers to use. Why? Because they're going to put a lot more regulatory uh, protections in there for workers, which I know sounds terrible, uh, but it's going to, people are going to say, I'd rather just hire somebody that's undocumented. That That's going to happen. The, the bigger problem with the H-2A program is that it's for farm workers, but not every farm can participate. For example, dairy farms can't use H-2As because they're not agricultural, right? Although they're clearly farms. So the H-2A program itself is is not a great program. It's used, it's it can be effective in some ways, but it, it doesn't really match up the right people at the right place at the right time. And I, I will tell you this, the, the, the entire system itself is really built broken. I wrote a, a blog about this a couple of days ago called The Visa Apocalypse. If you are from India and you are a software engineer and you come legally and you want to get a green card, right now the waiting time for Indian nationals to get a green card is 210 years. That's how long it will take you in the line. We, we have in the line today more than two and a half million people, legal immigrants, legally in the United States, on visas who have applications pending for green cards. We only give out 140,000 green cards a year. That's really the problem. Illegal immigration is a direct result of a poorly run, managed, and set up legal immigration system. Chuck Cook, uh, we're out of time for our conversation. But as always, I learned so much about what's happening on the immigration front when you're with us. So thank you very much for for joining us for Politically Georgia. We got to get to another break, but when we come back, Greg Bluestein is standing by. He was in Washington yesterday for what has been billed as the single largest pro-Israel rally in American history. And we'll talk to Greg about that in just a moment. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter, which we used to call the Jolt. And now we have the new Politically Georgia PM newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up with what's going on while you've been at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. 
Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. That's all one word spelled out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. Greg, uh, you were in Washington uh, for personal reasons uh, on Monday, but you stayed over yesterday because you wanted to report on what we now believe ended up being the single largest pro-Israel rally in the history of this country at the National Mall. Tell us about what the point of that rally was that you heard from the speakers. And we had a lot of Georgians up there, too. Yeah, Bill, you're right. About a thousand or so Georgians came. I can tell you, I was on the flight, the late night flight home last night, and there was at least three rabbis on my flight home alone, (laughs) including a a number of other community leaders who you would know. Um, But uh, no, it was, uh, you know, getting to that rally. I've been to a lot of rallies at the the mall and in Washington, um, but this was something else. Nearly 300,000 people attended, about 290,000, according to the organizers' estimates. I stood on the risers. And from the press pen near the front, and I could just see blue and white and red, white, and blue as far as the eye could see all the way to the Washington Monument. So it was remarkable. And as you as you mentioned, or as you asked, the, the points of the rally were to show unity with Israel, uh, to demonstrate support for ending uh, anti-Semitism, and showing solidarity and calls to release the 200-plus hostages that were taken captive on October 7th when Hamas invaded Israel. One of the uh, speakers, Deborah Lipstadt, a longtime professor at Emory University and one of the leading experts, if not the leading expert in the country on the Holocaust, and now a, a special ambassador to the Biden administration dealing with anti-Semitism. So she was a major part of this rally as well. And particularly when you think about the the surge in anti-Semitism in this country, um, her presence is really important. Yeah, there's been a, a, a marked increase the number of anti-Semitic attacks, according to the Anti-Defamation League, um, since the Hamas attack against Israel, 400%, uh, so more quadrupling, uh, more than quadrupling in, in anti-Semitic incidents, as we've heard of them on campuses, at rallies, in communities. You can find them on social media. And uh, Deborah Lipstadt basically said, this is a direct danger to our democracy in condemning these sorts of attacks. Tia? So, Greg, I was wondering, what was the central theme um, or maybe what were some of the main themes you heard from the speaker? Because I saw I took public transportation yesterday in Washington. I saw lots of Israeli flags, of course, Jewish people in their yarmulkes. And um, but it was it about anti-Semitism? Was it about support for Israel, the country? Was it you know, what were was it all of the things? Yeah, it was kind of a, a stew of a lot of different elements there, Tia. Um, yes, there was a lot of support for Israeli's military action. Uh, it was, there was a very, very bellicose undertone. I mean, when a few speakers talked of of peace, bringing peace to the Middle East uh, and bringing peace between uh, Israel and Gaza, there were chants of no ceasefire, no ceasefire that erupted from different parts of the group. And I remember there's you know 300,000 or so people there. So I don't know if that was the prevailing sentiment, but I certainly heard those chants. Um, there was evangelical preacher who talked of, uh, you know, uh, lockstep support with Israel. Diplomats spoke. Bipartisan leaders spoke. We had, um, you, you, we saw the, uh, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, House Speaker Mike Johnson, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the House Minority Leader, and Jody Ernst, uh, the uh, um, a, a top Republican in the U.S. Senate, all declare their unequivocal support 
for for Israel. But also, I th- I'd say the most compelling speakers were the families of those who were who were taken captive in Israel. They spoke very emotionally about the sense of dread, the sense of fear and anxiety they've experienced, how they haven't been able to basically live uh, themselves since October seventh, knowing that their loved ones, their cousins, their sisters, their brothers, their their sons, their daughters, are in these terror tunnel tunnels under under uh, Gaza City or under uh, under these metropolises in, in in Gaza, these these villages in Gaza, the sense of dread they're facing, not knowing where their loved ones are or how they're doing. And Greg, we should point out that you and Patricia Murphy a couple of weeks ago actually had the opportunity to interview some family members who were here in Atlanta. And and you, if if you were to go back and search politically Georgia podcast, you could find uh, some of the sound we played that you and Patricia got. But but Greg, l- l- let me ask you about this aspect of it. Um, we know that in the immediate aftermath of the barbaric attacks by Hamas on Israelis, uh, particularly in villages along the border and within a, a striking distance of, of Gaza, um, world sympathy immediately turned to the Israeli. That's probably an overstatement. There were a great many people across the country and in the world who felt immediate sympathy for what the Israelis had just experienced. Um, Now, because Israel is um, continuing its attacks on Gaza, we see destruction, we see death and the like. Some of those very same people are suddenly now either calling for peace or turning to anti-Israeli sentiments. So I wonder what it was like for you personally, as a Jew like me, to be there and see this massive support for Israel on the mall. Yeah, you know, it was look, um, it was, it was, it was very emotional. I, as you mentioned, I had a personal reason to be up there. It was my nephew's bris the day before. So we went from this this sense of joy this joyous occasion um, and to this rally that again was, was also very joyous for, for, for many of the uh, participants. Um, I talked to so many from Atlanta who talked about how they have this sense of vulnerability. Stephanie Weiss of Sandy Springs talked to me about this, how she's in this constant state of anxiety and she felt this sense of, of safety and security at the rally that she had been missing back home, just being surrounded by that bubble of, of support and, and, and safety. You know, a lot of people, in our community, in the Jewish community, haven't felt this threatened in a long time. And I know there's other marginalized communities that have. And so we have to reflect that. There's plenty of others who have long had this feeling. And for many Jewish people, it's the first time they're they're really facing that with this rise in anti-Semitic attacks and incidences. And certainly there's also been a rise of Islamophobia as well and, mm-hmm. Islam- and anti-Islamic attacks as well that we should definitely note. But um, I- I'd say just being surrounded by um by by Jewish people of all different backgrounds and persuasions and political parties there was Republicans there was Democrats there was there's 300,000 people almost so you had a, a, a you know a broad array of Jewish perspectives and many who wanted just to see peace and many who wanted to see uh, Hamas eradicated from the face of the earth, um, but all getting together with one common message, which was we support Israel, we condemn anti-Semitic attacks, and we want to see their hostages really released, was a very stirring moment. Tia, this actually takes us back to the uh, subject we started our show with today, and that is in this continuing resolution passed by House Republicans and with Democratic support, there is no new funding for either Israel or Ukraine, despite the fact we certainly know that a majority 
of members of Congress are supportive of Israel. Right. And that's because the House's approach, remember, they said they'll give $14 billion to Israel, but they offset it by cutting $14 billion from the IRS. Democrats wouldn't go along with that. There were enough Republicans who also wouldn't go along, whether it's because they didn't want money for Israel or they also didn't want to cut the IRS funding. funding. And so right now, nothing for Israel. Well, so we will wait to see, Greg Bluestein, how that uh, progresses. Uh, the White House certainly says new funds for Israel are crucial at this moment. Yeah, and we heard from that rally and we've heard in public statements this coalition of Republicans and mainstream Democrats. But at the same time, Bill, as we've seen in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll, there's a growing number, especially of more diverse, more liberal and younger Democrats who don't see Israel as a priority. And that's going to be a continuing sense of tension within the Democratic Party. Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to be with us. I know we'll see you tomorrow on Politically Georgia. Tia Mitchell, always wonderful to get to share a program with you as well. We're completely out of time for today's Politically Georgia, except I do have enough time to say to you that um, if you have a question that you'd like to ask us at Politically Georgia, you can call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime, day or night. Leave a question. We'll answer it on the Friday show. That number is 404 526 AJCP 404-526-2527. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.